Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. And this week, we'll depart from our our normal study through 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look to the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, we'll consider one of the accounts today of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick up here in verse 28, and for the sake of context here this morning, let's go ahead and Read together from his word, Luke 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered, verse 40, and said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. If you would agree with me in prayer once more, Lord, we recognize that this is your word and what a treasure it is. I pray we, like the psalmist, would rejoice as one who finds great treasure that we would consider this morning. How wonderful is your word and this particular passage, Lord, what an event. Lord, what an event in history. And the things, Lord, that that this was both the culmination of, but also the the events that this kicked off and how truly, Lord, it has changed the course of history. So, Lord, may we truly consider it for what it is here this morning and ask, Lord, once again by your Spirit, minister to us here today. Give us understanding of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Growing up where I did in southwest Michigan, the area there was comprised of many small towns. Uh, Each little town prided themselves on fostering a sense of community. Uh, And often around different holidays, there seemed no greater way to foster community and a sense of community pride than to have a parade. The 4th of July especially, and no doubt many of you can relate to this, and, and in our particular town on the 4th of July, we lived in, in, um, in a house where the procession would go right, right past us. And, uh, and the parade and other festivities, it was an all-day event. 
And so important, though, were these different celebrations that often the towns would work together and they would coordinate to have their event at different times or even on different days so as not to compete with one another and draw away from the crowd. Such a courtesy was welcomed, and of course it was strategic for the benefit of of each town and their local commerce. Now, you might be wondering, why am I telling you this this morning? Well, there was a day in history, an important day, a day that would serve as the fulfillment of prophecy given long before, a day where two parades occurred in the same town. Was there a mistake in the event coordination? at the local chamber of commerce? Many suggest that there was no mistake at all, but rather that the conflict was entirely intentional. The day was April 6th, 32 AD. And through the west gate of Jerusalem came riding a man whose entrance was met with much excitement. There were great crowds, thousands lined the street throwing flowers. Some sought to reach out and touch the power as it passed them. Guards stood ready to act should the crowds get out of control. The man coming through the gate sat tall in his saddle. It was clear he was a man of authority, intent on showing his power and control over the land. After all, he was considered the Lord protector of this people, and they needed to be reminded of it. Now, if elements of that story sound familiar, yet also slightly unfamiliar and even odd at the same time, that's because you're likely more familiar with the procession that was happening about the same time at the other end of the city, through the east gate, the back gate. It was through the east gate where Jesus would enter the city on the same day. This Sunday of Passover week, all those years ago, his procession was also one of great reception, Crowds were there crying out to Jesus, looking on at the man that they had heard of, that they had seen perform miracles. The man, had been, uh, the man that many had been hoping, hoping was the one, the Messiah, who had come to deliver them from oppression. Jesus, too, rode on an animal, but a very different type that sent a very different message. In some respects, yet also the same. In their book, The Last Week, theologians Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan suggest that Pontius Pilate and Jesus entered Jerusalem at the same time from different gates on Palm Sunday. Now, while we don't know for sure if the events exactly coincided, tradition would certainly suggest that this was entirely possible. Traditionally, Pilate or whomever the Judean governor was, paraded themselves into Jerusalem on the first day of Passover week, entering the west gate, the front or the main gate. And they came with chariots, horses, and soldiers, dressed for battle and armed with swords and spears. It was a show of power. Rome was not to be challenged. Pilate demanded respect, fear, and even worship. According to the Roman belief, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome. He was the son of God. So Pilate, as his representative, demanded such honor. It should be known, as far as Pilate was concerned, 
that his presence demanded order, that his power was supreme, and the land of Judea was under his control. So what of the entrance of Jesus at this same time in such a similar way to Pilate? This can hardly be coincidence. And in fact, I would submit to you that it was entirely intentional. That this was the fulfillment of prophecy, that that the events of Jesus' triumphal entry would kick off the events of Holy Week and start the clock, the countdown, as it were, to Jesus' death and resurrection. But this was also a statement to the world. A statement that says God's ways are not our ways. This adds some color to our understanding of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, doesn't it? If, if Jesus was being subversive or even launching, as it were, a counter-protest to the procession of Pilate, it might cause us to look at this event in subtly different ways. And then we see that from here even, on the next day, as you consider the events of the week that would unfold, that on the very next day, Jesus will go into the temple and He will drive out the money changers. He'll overturn tables. Jesus in this week was acting differently than He had before. Jesus was bringing the Gospel to bear on a lost world. In His final days, He began to radically confront the ways of this world more and more. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Let's go back again to the beginning of this passage in Luke 19, verse 28. It says, When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now prior to this, Jesus had been very busy continuing to minister to many people. He was keeping a full schedule, as it were. He and the disciples had actually just come from a visit with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And this is where the anointing occurred there at Bethany when it was poured out for him or upon him, very costly perfume. And now they're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming by way of the Mount of Olives. And as they came, they would begin to descend from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives overlooked the Temple Mount. And in between the two was the Kidron Valley. As they began to descend down toward the Kidron Valley and eventually ascend once again into the city. They were taking in what no doubt was just a a bustling move of people as they were making their way, making their pilgrimage into the city. As Jesus comes down the road and He's looking out towards the temple, He sees off to His left whitewashed tombs for seemingly as far as the eye could see. And the the city at this point, is it's pulsing with an influx of people. Tensions in the city were high, not only because of the Jewish feast of Passover, which was set against the backdrop of Roman oppression. Consider that coming to celebrate Passover, this event about the freedom, about how God had led them out of Egypt, but yet here they're under occupation once again. 
And not just the sense of the Roman oppression, but the Jewish leaders themselves, they were looking for a fight. Specifically with Jesus. And Jesus was about to give them exactly what they were looking for. Or so they thought. In the various Gospels, the writers record some of the different events and even the conversations that were happening as they made their way to the city. Mark's account is rather poignant. Mark writes in Mark 10, and 34 of the words of Jesus during this very moment that He said to His disciples, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him and scourge Him and spit on Him and kill Him, and the third day He will rise again. We must understand that the events that would follow even later on in this week were in no way a surprise to Jesus. He came in boldly knowing exactly what He was coming for. Recorded in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says of His own life, No one takes it from Me, but I lay it down of Myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus knew what He was walking into. What He was about to do for you and for me. He entered into this city on Palm Sunday to willingly lay His life down for us. And of the procession about to occur, Jesus had a plan. He tells the disciples to go into the village and they'll find a colt that had never been ridden. It would be there, ready for their use. It's interesting, we never really get a sense of the disciples' sort of perspective of this as they go and they find this thing and they don't ever seem to express like, how did he do this? How did he have this thing? Did he call ahead? Hey, I need to rent a colt. Just go pick it up. We don't, we don't know. This is very specific instruction though. And we don't know how it is that Jesus had made this arrangement. Some suggest that because he had, in fact, been in the city not long before this, that uh, maybe he did have it arranged, and others, of course, that this was purely divinely appointed. Matthew's Gospel account tells us why this specific instruction was so important. In Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, Matthew writes, All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophet here is Zechariah. And in Zechariah 9, verse 9, he writes of the coming king, declaring to Jerusalem that they should rejoice, for their king has salvation, and he comes to them on a colt the foal of a donkey, hundreds of years before Zechariah prophesies of this, and now Jesus with great care seeks to fulfill it that He might proclaim to the world, I'm here. And, and people, including the religious leaders, they knew it. They knew what this meant. Now, of course, they didn't fully understand. They didn't understand how the week was going to unfold, but as Jesus came in in the manner in which He did, they knew he is declaring himself to be king. Verse 32, So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. And so the disciples are obedient. 
They go just as Jesus has instructed them. But it says in verse 33, as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And so the people would just go, oh, okay. You can go and take, isn't that how it works? I can go after this and I can say, give me your car. And you go, that's my car. And I say, the Lord has need. Okay. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me. Guys, I apologize for the voice. It's just like not coming back. If you can, t- if you can tell like a weakness in it, it's like, it's, it's pushing it still, okay? So um, the prayers for me are appreciated. Um, now, it's interesting here, this whole interaction, right? Because literally in the Greek, and this is fun. It is, I promise, it's fun. <laughs> it, says, it says for the disciples' owners to tell the cult's owners that the cult's owner needs it. Isn't that kind of confusing? And so we, we of course, we translate it, the Lord has need of it, but quite literally, when the owner says, hey, what are, you, what are you doing with that? They say to him, the guy who owns this needs it. And he says, okay. You see, so many subtleties in this passage, but what Jesus is telling people to communicate, what he's instructed his disciples to, to communicate is to say, it's mine. This is mine. It's not Pilate's, it's not anybody else's, it's mine. And so they say to him, the owner, the real owner, he needs it. Now it's probably the case that the owner here is happy to then lend this resource to a respected rabbi at least. If not, he has kind of a full understanding of, I I know what's going down here and you do whatever you want to do. But all of this then for us continues to reinforce here that Jesus is setting up something very special. And so then, verse 35 and 36, they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. So Jesus is now getting ready to ride into Jerusalem on a young donkey that has never been ridden. And, and here, many people misunderstand this particular part and assume that the fact that Jesus is riding on the foal of a donkey, that this is the lowly part. Like he got the compact at the rental place, right? He didn't splurge for the upgrade. And that's not what's being communicated here. Now, I suppose for some who are seeing him on a donkey, maybe they too, even in this moment, um, saw it as unusual or certainly a contrast to the procession that they may be familiar with happening across the city. And, and, and of Pilate's procession, normally in a Roman, what's called a triumvirate or triumph, the conquering hero would enter on a horse, as Pilate would have done, or a horse-drawn chariot, either one, which is a sign of power and great strength. Jesus enters sitting on a young donkey that's never been ridden before. And by the way, there's a good chance many believe that the, the mom donkey is along for the ride um, because the colt, the foal, would have been too scared otherwise. So having mom there with them would have kept it calm. I think it's pretty cool if that is what happened. Uh, and so, you see... In this moment here, Jesus' choice of an animal 
was not just fulfillment of prophecy. Of course, that was important. Nor was it simply a humble choice, but it communicated something. Now, there were times when kings would often ride on such an animal, especially one on which no other rider had sat. And this was not only a sign of royalty that they were able to ride on something that was sort of pure in that sense, but it was also very important that that such an act communicated that they were a king who was coming in peace, not to make war. You see, Jesus' choice here was very intentional, and while it may not have screamed war hero, it absolutely declared, I am your king. Now, Scripture does say that He came lowly, but the lowly part was that Jesus came, in my opinion, willingly knowing what awaited Him. He did not come this time in a demonstration of His absolute power and ability to bring all into surrender, but He Himself came surrendered. Surrendered to the plan and purpose for which He had come. And it's important for us to understand today that there is a time, there is yet a time when Jesus will come on a war horse, when He will come in great power and great glory, where He will exercise dominion over all things and demand all to come into subjection to Him. We read of this in Revelation 19 at His glorious second coming. So there is yet a time when Jesus will ride such a horse, but this time He came saying, I am your King, and I'm here to make peace. I'm here to bring you peace. Jesus' entry through the back door was a symbol of salvation and peace. It was communicating the return of God's King to God's people, and it was absolutely confronting the procession at the other end. Verse 37, Then as He was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so, you see, they did know what He was doing. They didn't fully understand how the story would go, but they understood what He was communicating. And so while Jesus may be making His entry through the opposite gate of Pilate, don't think that people didn't see it. In fact, the very way in which He approached the city which I believe was absolutely by design. The road that he came in on, it was highly visible from the city. If any of you have ever been to Israel, or if you've seen pictures, the very road that he made his way in on between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount can be seen from the majority of at least that side of the city. It's very visible. And so here he comes in a highly visible way. And along the way, they begin waving palm branches. Now this was a tradition. Why were they waving palm branches? This was a tradition from around 200 years earlier when the Jews celebrated Judas Maccabee, who had led a revolt over Antiochus Epiphanes, who had come in and desecrated the city. 
And when they were delivered from that oppression, they began to celebrate by casting palm branches on the road. And from that point forward, it became a way of celebrating freedom or deliverance from oppression. And so the Jews here that are celebrating Jesus now, they're saying here's another one who's coming to lead a revolt and deliver us from our oppression. And indeed he was, they just didn't rightly understand what oppression. And so this palm branch was a, was a symbol that they were now casting before Jesus. Matthew's Gospel tells us that the people are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, the psalmist writes, Save now, I pray. O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. They know what they're saying to Jesus. Now this term, save now, in the Hebrew is hoshiana, which was transliterated into the Greek alphabet as hosanna. And then in our English language as hosanna. And it means save now. Save us now. Deliver us from this oppression. The Jews knew, again, what they were saying when they said this as they referenced Psalm 118. Save us now. As Jesus here was coming as royalty, the king who was sitting on a donkey saying, I'm going to bring peace. And they're saying, here's our Messiah. Here's our king. And here's what we need to know about this. This is dangerous language. Dangerous language that he was welcoming from them. This was inflammatory language. He knew as he received such praise, as they looked out, no doubt, from the city, down under the road as he made his way in and saw the palm branches being thrown down, Jesus knew it's coming. In fact, many believe that the very events that were transpiring in this time only hastened the move to the cross. Because this was treason. The entire scene from riding a colt to spreading the cloaks to proclaiming Jesus as king, it was sedition. And the Jewish religious leaders are the first to try to stop it. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, in this moment they're saying, You better tell them to be quiet. John chapter 1, verse 11 tells us that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. You would think in this moment that the Pharisees would be all for this demonstration of defiance. And, and, and the cries of the people for deliverance from Rome, you would have to think they would be like, yeah, let's do this. But you see, what we often misunderstand as well is that Rome had the priests in their hands. Rome did not force their religion on the Jews as they did with other conquered territories because the Romans considered that Judaism was an ancient religion and so Jews, differently than others in the Roman Empire, were allowed to practice a different faith so long as Roman order was maintained and the Roman tribute paid. So the priests kept things as they should be. And all of this then sheds light, doesn't it, on the fact that the next thing that Jesus does is go and flip some tables and tell the money changers, get out. As He goes and He cleanses the temple. You see, all this was coming together. He was, in fact, cleaning house. 
So Jesus comes in his counter-protest of sorts. He rides into the city as the king who brings peace, and he welcomes the praises of the people. And from the perspective of the priests, um, comes threatening to ruin everything. And they tell him, silence the people. But Jesus answers, and oh, how I love how he answers. In verse 40, as he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. He says, you can't shut this thing down. If you quiet the people, all of the creation is going to begin to cry out. And it's crazy because to this point, Jesus seemed to make a habit out of telling people to be quiet and not talk of who he was or what he had done. But here, it's so refreshing, at least for me, to see Jesus go, oh no, they're going to talk. They're going to praise. They're going to worship. He effectively says that if they don't praise me, then all of the earth will. It's interesting, in Matthew's Gospel, he writes in this very setting here, he says that the city was moved by this. Now that can seem like just kind of a basic phrase, but the Greek word for move is seismos, from which we get our word earthquake. Matthew is saying in this moment, as Jesus says, if you tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. Matthew is saying the whole city was already quaking. In Romans 8.22, Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And I think there is a sense of creation longing to praise God. He's made it. And, and you know, it's interesting, and please don't take this further than what it needs to go. I'm not suggesting some whole theology here. But it's interesting to me when we consider such passages and we consider even Jesus saying, look, the rocks are going to cry out. I can't help but think sometimes that when we see storms and earthquakes and natural disasters like we do on this earth, that it's only filling the void by those who won't praise Him, who won't cry out. We need to understand that, and, and it's Piper, I think, that said this, that, that missions only exists because worship doesn't. That the very need for us to continue to share the gospel and to communicate the truth of the gospel is only because there's still this void in the world where people aren't praising God. Because if we all were, then of course he'd say mission accomplished, job is done. But until that time, as people remain silent, especially as this church remains silent, I don't think sometimes that the earth can hold back. It just shouts out and groans for what should be our cry as well. And recently, in our study of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 7, verse 31, Paul says the form of this world is passing away. Paul says, if you're here in our study last week, he says, I think a right translation is, this world is being revealed for the sham that it is. Not that God doesn't bless us with things in this world, but he's saying, look, this world is passing away. It cannot fulfill you. But it keeps parading itself before you and appealing to your senses, just like Pilate's ride into Jerusalem. You know, Satan has the same old tactics. He hasn't changed his game at all. He knows what attracts man's attention and he keeps playing on it the same way over and over and over again. 
And the problem is we keep falling for it. Still today, our world longs to see a show of power. Of who can establish dominance. It's going on all around us. Our world, though, longs for peace. We talk about it all the time. We long for peace. We long for deliverance from oppression. Victory over the oppressor. But we continue to look to the source of oppression for our freedom. How crazy is that? The world fawns over the one who rides in through the main gate with promises of power and perfect rule, but misses the one who comes to bring the peace that we all desire. It wasn't long before the cries of Hosanna turned to cries of crucify Him when the people realized that Jesus wasn't going to do what they thought He was going to do. But as is so often the case, what they wanted from Jesus was so far less than what He freely offered. And Jesus knew this. That's why in verses 41 and 42, As he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, this is him saying today, if you knew what today was, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The day was Sunday. We know it as Palm Sunday. Then they knew it as the 10th day of Nisan. April 6th on our calendar. Four days prior to the Feast of Passover. Now in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, they were instructed on that day, on this particular day, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, was the same day that Jewish, good Jewish families all over the city were going to pick out their lamb. They were going to go pick out their lamb that they would sacrifice four days later. And for the period of four days, the priests would observe and they would ensure that the lamb had no blemish, that it was a good sacrifice. Uh, Jewish families would bring the lamb into their home. They would spend time with it. Most of the time, the kids would get attached to it. Even in that short period of time, it would make the sacrifice of it even that much more difficult. And here on this Palm Sunday, this particular day, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came riding into the city along with all the other sacrificial animals that were being brought and bought. The Lamb of God. The one perfect sacrifice was entering the city precisely when it had been foretold. Jesus came to Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan, exactly when he was prophesied to do so hundreds of years before. Daniel, the prophet Daniel in chapter 9, verse 25, said, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, 483 years from March 14th, 445 B.C., when Artaxerxes gave the Jews the charge to go and rebuild Jerusalem was April 6th, 32 A.D. Jesus nailed it. He nailed it. And Zechariah prophesied of it. We considered the first part of the prophecy. Let's look at the whole thing. In Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Listen, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He came with peace. Two parades came into Jerusalem that day. One was a parade of power, of might, of dominance, of flash, of wealth, and the other a parade of peace, of humility, of sacrifice, of love, and of selflessness. Pilate's parade was the parade of the world, and it garners attention still today in its various forms. The latter, that of Jesus, was the one that was rejected that week. Because Jesus' parade led to a cross. Yet it's the one that offers what everyone longs for. Many have joined in this parade over the years. They've counted the cost and they've come to know the truth that the world can't make good on its promises. But I can't help but wonder today which parade commands your attention or even your pursuits. It's interesting. Near the end of his life, Napoleon Bonaparte, some of you know this, he's quoted as saying the following. He says, there is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. He then explained, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius, he asks. Upon sheer force is his answer. Comparatively, Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. What Napoleon recognized is what we all must come to understand, that the ways of this world are not the ways of God. Rather, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, Jesus commands Christians to seek consciously the lowest room. You see, we have a way of rationalizing the need to build bigger and bigger empires and, and, and greater followings. But according to Scripture, this is backwards. Schaeffer says we should consciously take the lowest place unless the Lord Himself places us into a greater one what's our aim what's our objective how do these things play out in your day-to-day -day life in your relationships with other people in the workplace when we go to work and and, and 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 many times we even convince ourselves that to be a good steward to be a good representation of jesus is to be promoted to excel to work our way up be careful you're not just convincing yourself of that. What we're called to be in the workplace is a faithful witness, salt and light. And sometimes the workplace will see that and go, man, this guy works hard. This lady, she's got integrity. But other times they may say, we hate you because you confront us with the truth of the gospel. Which is our aim. 
On Palm Sunday, as we kick off this holy week, I think it is important for people to understand that as Jesus climbed upon that donkey and rode into Jerusalem on the Sunday of Passover week, that Jesus was knowingly opposing the way of the world and he was clearly calling people to something different. He was communicating our lives are to look different. And still today, the world parades itself pretending to offer something that will satisfy, pretending to offer peace. And still today, Jesus offers an alternative, welcoming us to know Him and know the peace that is only found in Him. But such peace may come at a great cost. It's easy to stand on the side as a bystander, an observer, or even cheer on a cause or an idea, but it's another to follow that parade to the foot of the cross and to surrender our lives to Him. But this is what He calls us to. Loving God, loving our neighbor, seeking the peace and the welfare of our city, welcoming the stranger and the outcast, serving the poor and the needy, seeking ourselves the lowest place. This is the path to peace. Outdoing one another and showing love. Yes, this is a procession that makes its way to Calvary. We're all called to pick up our cross, to lay our lives down. And yes, this is a procession then that goes from Calvary to a tomb. But as the week would unfold, we see that it's a path that ultimately leads to resurrection and an empty tomb, to a stone rolled away and the promise of eternal life. When all these things will be made new when what he intended for us all along will be ushered in. A new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth. Not this one. Amen? God, on this day, this day that we celebrate that so many years ago, your son Jesus entered the rebellious city that later rejected Him. And we confess, if you're so inclined to confess together that we would have hearts of agreement, we confess, Lord, that our wills are just as rebellious as Jerusalem's. That our faith is often more show than substance. That our hearts, too, are in need of cleansing. And we recognize, Jesus, that this way may be narrow, and it may not always be easy, but it's the way that leads to life. And so today we seek to take this way. And so God, we would ask that you would turn our attention away from the ways of this world. That you would help us to lay at your feet all that we have and all that we are. That we would trust you to forgive and to heal and to receive us as your own. And we declare today that Jesus, you are our King. That you have authority over all things. Everything in heaven and earth, it's yours. 
And so whatever the world may seek to offer us as if it has ownership of it, as if it even has the right, we declare, Lord, it's Yours. Anything that we think we can hold on to because we deserve it, because we think it's ours, Lord, it's Yours. And that includes our lives. They're not our own. We were bought at a price. You, Jesus, came in humility. You came to serve and to give Your life for the world. Help us, Lord, to follow Your example. On this Palm Sunday, Jesus, we are reminded of how quickly our loyalty to You diminishes. And so I'd ask that You would give us a passion for You as we remember Your passion for us this week. Jesus, draw our attention unto You more and more each day. Lord, we're grateful for this week where many in the world, Lord, recognize it as different, when many will seek to, to go to church, if only out of religion, Lord, it, it speaks of a fact that there is something there, that there is something important. And so, Lord, use us then, Your church, in this week to reach people with that truth. That it would no longer be religion, but that it would now be relationship. That they would come to know You, Jesus. Lord, we know that you desire to use us and to use our lives to accomplish that work, but it needs to match, Lord. They need to be lives that are following after you, not the world. And so, Lord, do that work in us here today. Once again, Lord, draw our attention unto you. Work in our hearts, Lord, this week, but every week, Lord. Between now and when you should return, Lord, may our desire and our love and our passion for you grow more and more and more, Lord, we pray. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We give you thanks and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.